Hi there. How's everyone doing? Feels good to be in this warm room, doesn't it? I looked at the thermometer at 6 o'clock this morning when I left the house, and it said 6 degrees. I was like, what? Like, good grief. It's November. Did anyone else get up this morning and say, good grief? Yeah, a few of you. Greetings to you at the bridge in Glendive. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, We did break ground on phase one this week. So we're... And it, it's, uh, it's not really funny, but we broke ground on Wednesday, and look what it did on Thursday. So uh, it's just going to be a muddy mess out there the whole time. I'll get to talk to you more about that next weekend. It's Vision Weekend. Do not miss that, please. Lots of stuff about what God's been doing uh, over the course of the past 12 months, and then we'll look ahead through this current ministry year, and I'll even get to show you some pictures of the elevations uh, of that building, and we'll get around that some more. Don't miss it next weekend. And I just want to tell you that I absolutely love where this whole uh, Life Hurts, God Heals experience lands. I like that it doesn't land with a focus on us. And over the course of the last now 10 weeks, we spent a whole bunch of time talking about us. And I like that this ends, it sort of departs from that and ends with a focus on other people. I like that because one of the things we say a lot around here is that life isn't all about us. And lots of times we forget that, but we're going to end this experience with a focus on sharing, a focus on other people. If you've got your study guide, I invite you to turn to page 82. This will be the last weekend we're rattling around this thing. If you're following along and take notes in, taking notes in there, and hope that continues to be a useful guide resource for you for just stuff that God's pressing in on you. Now, those of you who joined up with a small group for this experience, way to go. And I want you to know that you have a couple of options going forward. First option is you can pull the ripcord and you can uh, punch out, if you will, and you can be finished, all done with your small group. I'm really proud of those of you, lots and lots of first-time small groupers in this experience. Uh, You made it. You did it. Way to go. And I hope uh, and I pray that you found that to be a very worthy investment of your time and your energy, and I hope you saw God do some cool stuff in you through that time. Now, uh, that's one set of you who are like, okay, I did that. I'm going to take a break from that. that. And that's fine, okay? That's just fine. There's no condemnation in that, like, oh, you quit your small group. Nothing like that at all, okay? I have heard rumblings, though, that there are lots and lots of you who are committed to keeping on. You're going to press on. And uh, if you're pressing on, you're not better than the people who are punching out, okay? Just so we're clear on that. Now, if you're like, but I don't know what to do. Study guides, we're kind of done with that. And so now what? All you got to do is talk to Pastor Sam Summers, Pastor of Spiritual Formation. He and the team that watches over small groups, they've got ideas and they've got resources and they will give uh, all of that to you. So hook up with them and they'll walk forward with you. And this final week in this Life Hurts, God's Heal, God Heals experience is actually called the sharing choice because it's not about you. It's about sharing your pain, your struggle, your story with other people. And John Baker and Rick Warren wrote some stuff that was resource for my study and my preparation this week. And here's the truth, that once any of us begin to experience recovery, restoration, revival, renewal, whatever you want to call it, once you begin to experience spiritual growth at a new level, and you begin to experience maybe for the first time in your whole life the peace of God washing over your life, God whispers in your ear, look, this isn't just so that you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, see. God whispers to every single one of us that he wants us to pass that peace that we've been able to encounter onto other people. 
He wants us to give it away. As a matter of fact, the sharing piece of this whole deal is actually the proof of our recovery. How do you know when you're recovered from a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up? How do you know when you're really over that big pain in your life? How do you know that you're done with that betrayal, the rejection, the abuse? How do you know when you're through with that abuse and hurt from your childhood, from your marriage? How do you know when it's in the rearview mirror and you are well? How do you know? It's a real simple answer. It's when you begin to help other people who are in the exact same place that you were in. A guy says it this way, please do not ever waste your hurt. Please do not ever waste your hurt. If we're not helping other people with the same hurt that we've been through, then we're wasting the hurt and we're not recovered yet. You still have some pressing in to do if you're not helping people. The proof of recovery is that you start to help other people. It's the eighth choice in the Life Hurts, God Heals experience. It's the sharing choice. Speaking of sharing, a man and a woman who had never ever met before, they, end up, uh, they ended up sharing the same sleeping berth in a, on a train. And it was awkward for a moment. They were both initially embarrassed and They finally sort of got over that. They were adults, right? And so they managed to get some sleep. The woman was sleeping on the top bunk, the man on the lower bunk. And in the middle of the night, the woman, she leans over from the top bunk and says, look, I'm really sorry to bother you, but I'm awfully cold, and I was just wondering if you could pass me another blanket, please. The man, he hears her, and he says, well, uh, kind of with a glint in his eye even, he says, I've got a better idea. How about we just pretend we're married? And uh, the, the woman, she sort of giggles and says, well, why not? And he says, uh, thanks. Now get your own blanket. <laughs> That's not where you thought that was going, is it? You're like, oh gosh, he's getting into deep weeds with that deal. Yeah. It's the best humor, isn't it? It kind of surprises you. Uh, men, don't do that to your wife, okay? Just don't, don't get your own blanket. Should you choose the sharing piece of this recovery process, here's what you're deciding. Here's what you're choosing. You're choosing to yield yourself to God and be used by him to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. And some of you, we're going to leave that up on the screen for a moment, the screens for a moment. Some of you look at that and you're reading that and you're sort of processing that and you're thinking in your head right now, Brian, there's not a chance that I could do that thing. I have such an incredibly long way to go. And, and my response to that is, you're right. You absolutely have a very long way to go, and so do I. And so do I. And the real question then becomes, since when do you have to be perfect for God to use you? Since when do you have to be perfect for God to use you? Because, see, if God only uses perfect people, then I'm not standing here If God only uses perfect people, we don't have a staff at our church. If God only uses perfect people, we don't have any leaders in any of our ministries across the life of our church. Frankly, if God only uses perfect people, then not much, if anything, would get done across the kingdom of God because there's no such thing as perfect people. There's not. God uses broke, trash, and wrecked people because that's all he's got to work with, frankly. We're all broken. That means God only then uses broken people. And helping other people doesn't mean that you have to have it all together. See, just a little FYI, you will never have it all together this side of eternity. You just won't. 
You will never have it all together this side of eternity. And helping someone just simply requires that you be a single, one single step ahead of them. And actually, that's preferred. It's preferred for you to just be one step ahead instead of 10 steps or one mile or 10 miles ahead. Just to be a single step ahead of the person whom you're trying to help. If you give off, if any of us ever give off this idea that you've got it all figured out, that you've got it all together, that you're perfect, then you're just a huge discouragement to everyone else who's just muddling through the stuff. One of the myths of helping people is that you primarily help people out of your strength. It is an enormous myth. That's not true. You actually help people more out of your weaknesses, more through your weaknesses than you do through your strengths. Look at 2 Corinthians 12.9. This is a biblical concept, actually. Paul is writing about God early. uh, Here's what God says. My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And then Paul offers some personal commentary. So now I, that's Paul, am glad to boast about my what? Not my strengths. About my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ can work through me. One of the things I hope and pray for for our church community is that you never ever get a sense that I or anyone else around our church thinks that they've got it all figured out. Really. When I stand up here or when any of our other teaching pastors stands up here, I hope you get a very strong sense that we are somewhere along the processing continuum of figuring all this stuff out. Anyone who ever stands up here and says how great they are at something, you're like, so what? I can't, I can't do that. I can't be like that. I, no, no way. But when somebody stands up here and says, look, I really suck it up at that. And if you want to know what I suck it up at, just ask my wife. She has a lengthy list. Seriously. But when people are honest about their stuff, honest about their weaknesses, we all say, yes, I identify with that. I can sure relate to that. That's me right there. Because, see, it's in our weaknesses that we help people, not in our strengths. That's what the sharing choice is all about. And when we come to the place of getting and when we come to the place of understanding that God uses our weaknesses and God uses our pain in the lives of other people, life then takes on a dramatically new meaning as genuine recovery becomes just a part of who we are. We prove our recovery as we begin to lift our eyes off of ourselves and focus outside of ourselves. Stop focusing on our needs, our hurts, our problems, and begin to say, how can I help other people? That's the proof of our getting well, the proof of our recovery. And if we're going to help people out of this weak place, if we're going to help people out of our weaknesses then we're going to need a basic understanding of pain, aren't we? Because our greatest ministry honestly will flow out of our greatest pain. Not out of our strengths, not out of our talents, not out of all our seemingly good, strong points, but out of the most gut-wrenching and painful experiences in our whole life. Now just think about it for a moment. Who in the world can be more sympathetic than somebody who's already been through what that person is going through right now? Who? Who can better, for example, help the parents of a special needs child than parents of a special needs child, right? Who can better help somebody who's going through the process of going bankrupt than somebody who says, yep, I've been there and I've done that? Who can better help somebody who's experiencing the heartbreak and rejection of divorce or separation or so on than somebody who says, I remember exactly what that felt like? 
I remember that day. I remember those words. I remember how horrible all of that felt. And so would you please commit, just decide right now, before you and God, just decide that you're going to do everyone in your life a huge favor and stop wasting your pain. You're going to engage in it. You're going to embrace it. You're not going to spend your life holding it in. You're not going to spend your life hiding it. You're not going to hold it back because that doesn't do anyone any good. Just decide that you're going to be honest with God and you're going to be honest with yourself and you're going to be honest with other people and let God, permit God to take that thing that you hate the very most in your whole life, that thing that you are most disappointed by, that thing that you wish had absolutely never happened and let God speak right into it and hear God saying, yes, indeed that did happen. And indeed, that is a terrible thing. And hear God say, I am so sorry that happened. But let God say, I can use it. And I can use it for your benefit. And I can use it for my purposes. I can actually use it to help other people through your willingness to share your brokenness. For you just to be that honest. I'm a wreck in this area. And let God leverage it in the lives of other people. When you talk about pain, one of the first questions everyone thinks of is, why in the world does God allow pain? Why? Theologians and common folk alike have been wrestling with this question for as long as there have been human beings. There's really four big reasons, and I don't mean to say these just to think that we're going to settle it all right here. These are sort of elementary, broad-scope reasons. Here they are. First of all, there's pain because God's given us a free will. God's given us a free will. That means we all have the ability to choose. The text says in Genesis 1.27, God created human beings in his own image, right? God has choices. He imparted that same ability to choose to all of us. There's pain because human beings very often choose the opposite of God. That leads to pain. God says, do this, and we do that. God invites us to do this, and we do the exact opposite. There is pain there. There's pain because God gave us a free will. He didn't want us to be a bunch of mind-numbed robots like marionette dolls on strings, you know, do-do-do-do-do, him just pulling. No, created in his image, created with the same choice that he has. Free will, it's called. The second reason there's pain is that God uses it to get our attention, actually. How many of you men especially have been driving down the road and an indicator light on your dashboard has come on indicating that there is something amiss underneath the hood and you said to yourself, ah, it's no big deal. It's that like dumb oxygen sensor thing and it's just a stupid little deal and it doesn't really require my attention. But there it is flashing on your dashboard. Check engine now and you're like, nah, it's just nah. And then five miles later, you're broke alongside the road. Has that ever happened to you? It's because you ignored that warning indicator. Pain very often is a warning indicator in our lives. God's using it to try to get our attention. Hello, wake up. We're pretty good at medicating our pain away though, aren't we? Oftentimes I get a headache, what do I do? The first thing I do, I go right to the medicine cabinet, grab a couple of Advil and I'll uh, get rid of the headache. But what if that headache was a signal of something deeper? What's the cause of that headache? It's not just a headache. It's something somewhere trying to get my attention. Hello, Brian, wake up. God uses pain in the same way in our lives. Don't just gloss over the top of it. Don't just go, hmm, I don't know what that is. Ignore it. Look at what Proverbs 20:30 says. Sometimes it takes a painful experience to what? Make us change our ways. 
a painful experience to make us change our ways. God's getting our attention using pain to accomplish, 2 Corinthians 7, 9. Now, I'm glad, not because it hurt you, Paul speaking of a painful experience, but because the pain caused you to what? To repent and change your ways. Pain gets our attention. It wakes us up, grabs us, pay attention. Third reason that there's pain, God uses pain to teach us to depend on him. We think we've got life all figured out, don't we? We've got life by the tail and everything is going great. We think we don't need God. And then, bam, out of nowhere, God says, hello, you really do need me. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Paul's speaking of a brutal experience in his life. And he says, it was so bad we didn't think we were going to make it. We felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. As it turned out, that was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or our own wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. Oh, that we would all get to that place, trusting God totally. Most of us, we think that we've got an ace up our sleeves, right? We're holding out. We're like, yeah, I, I pretty much trust God, but in case God doesn't show up in the ways that I would like him to show up, I've got this little ace up my sleeve that I'm reserving the right for me to do my thing my way, just in case God doesn't step in the way I want or expect him to. Trust God totally. Get rid of the ace up your sleeve and put your trust fully in God and say, God, if you don't show up, it's lights out, frankly. I'm all in, all in with you, reserving no rights for my choice, my way, your way, God. And then Paul goes on in the text, not a bad idea, trusting God totally, since he's the God who raises the dead. He's worthy of our trust, isn't he? The same God who raises the dead. And then Psalm 119.71, my suffering was good for me. It taught me to pay attention to your decrees. God uses pain to teach us to depend on him. And then number four, and this is a hard one to swallow, but it's true, God allows pain to give us a ministry to others. God allows pain to give us a ministry to others. He wants to leverage it in our lives. Maybe you've read the story of Joseph in the Old Testament late in the book of Genesis. If you haven't read it, I'd invite you to do it. It's a fascinating sort of fun read. Lots of you know the story of Joseph. He has a bunch of brothers, and he's favored, Joseph is, by their father. And so the brothers, they get jealous, and they decide one day they're going to trick their dad. So they put a bunch of blood on his robe, this famous robe that Joseph had, you know, the Technicolor Dreamcoat kind of robe. And they go back to their father and say, oh, Joseph's dead. He's been eaten by a lion, but he really wasn't dead. They had just buried him in a hole waiting for the slave traders to come by where they later sold him into slavery. He gets sold off to Egypt. There he goes. He's gone. And the father is heartbroken. His favored son is dead to him, dead to the world. And then through an interesting set of circumstances, Joseph navigates himself, the favor of God, I say, to the number two position in the whole land. That leads to the place where there's a famine in Joseph's homeland. His brothers end up standing before him with great need. And Joseph sees them walk into the room, right? And Joseph knows exactly who they are. He, they have no idea who he is. How do you think that's going to play out, right? Think about that. Put yourself in the brother's shoes. There's Joseph. 
He knows what his brothers did to him. He has the ability to have their heads. But what does he do? He says, hey guys, Brother Joseph here. And the text doesn't really translate what they exactly said perfectly, but it was something like, oh shoot. (laughs) Right? Might have been a little different than that. Not sure. They're freaking out, right? How's this going to go? And Joseph has a lot of choices to make. And look at what he says, Genesis 50, 20. He says, look, brothers, you intended to harm me. You intended to harm me. But I'm here to tell you that God intended all of this stuff, all of this stuff. You lying to dad, you selling me into slavery, you telling dad that I'm dead. God intended all of that for good, see. And I know that there are absolutely people in all of our lives who have hurt us deeply and intentionally hurt us deeply. They meant to hurt you. Physically, emotionally, sexually, verbally, they meant and intended to cause you pain. Whether it be parents or partners or peers or professionals or kids on the playgrounds, for your whole life, people have been intending to hurt us. They meant stuff for very, very bad. But I'm here to tell you today that God intended all of that for good. He intended all of that for good. But it's only through the grace of God that good can come out of bad. You're not just going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps in this one and sort of bootstrap your way to good in the very bad. It's only the grace of God. And there is so much bad in the world, isn't there? There is so much bad. There is so much, I'm just going to use the word, evil in the world. And I know there's a whole bunch of people walking around who don't believe in evil in this world. But I don't know what else to call it besides evil when little children are stolen from their parents and sold into sex trafficking. That's evil, isn't it? I don't know what else you call it when world leaders take money from their people and store it in Swiss bank accounts while those same people starve to death. If that's not evil, I don't know what is. I don't know what else you call it besides evil when people betray each other time and time and time again. There is so much just flat evil in the world. Not all things are good. Cancer is evil in my view. Molestation is evil in my view. There's a lot of bad, there's so much evil in the world, isn't there? Lots of it. I got to tell you that my wife, Dana, she is an amazing baker. Like she gets it done like nobody's biz in the kitchen. I'm here to tell you. The other night, for example, she made this chocolatey gooey pudding cake thing for us. Uh, uh, It's food ecstasy. That's all I can say about that delightful experience. And I could hear Dana over in the kitchen, and she's whipping this thing up, right? And she's taking all these individual ingredients out of the pantry and out of the cupboards and the closets and so on, and she's whipping those individual ingredients into this one fabulous food ecstasy experience, right? Now, I want you to know I didn't do this, but let's just pretend that I did. What if I went into the kitchen and I I was just too undisciplined? I just couldn't wait for this gooey pudding cake thing to be finished. And what if I decided that I was just going to start eating those individual ingredients one by one by one of this gooey pudding thing, right? So I walk into the kitchen and I didn't do this and I wouldn't do this and I wouldn't recommend doing this. But what if you just grabbed the container of vegetable oil, for example, and you just, how's that going to go? 
is terrible, right? That, that's just nasty. What if I'd have grabbed, the, she had a couple of eggs on the counter. What if I'd have grabbed those couple of eggs and just cracked them right into my mouth? Makes you dry heave just thinking about it, doesn't it? That's really, it's just gross, right? Raw eggs, that's so sick. Now, vanilla, she had this big jar of vanilla, the kind from Mexico, you know? It's like, oh, it smells so good. But take a drink of it and, blah, sick. Take a big old scoop of flour. She was using flour to make this cake thing, right? Just take a big scoop. Put that in your mouth. How's that going to go? Mmm, tasteless, dry, nasty. Salt. She put some salt in this thing, right? So take, just fill your hand with it. Oh, and some of you will disagree very strongly with what I'm about to say. But she had a bunch of, this thing has a bunch of sugar in it, obviously. So you take this big thing, this big cup of sugar, and just start pouring it in your mouth. I say that's gross. Some of you are like, I do that every day. It's fantastic. All those individual ingredients, one by one by one, they're, they're, just, they're quite gross, actually. But Dana, she takes all of that stuff and she mixes all of those ingredients together. And frankly, in my view, she doesn't even need to cook the thing. The batter is fine with me. Just put it all together and give me a spoon and I am so happy with that. When all of that stuff is mixed together, all those individual elements that don't taste good by themselves, they actually come to taste quite fantastic, don't they? Not by themselves, but all together, quite fantastic. And we've all had those experiences in our lives that were just flat, gross, terrible, awful, disgusting. Those things that left a very bad taste in our mouths. They weren't good, they were bad. And God says, I want you to know I'm so much bigger than the bad stuff and I can work all of that bad stuff together and I can make a cake out of all of that bad stuff that will be Well, food ecstasy, amazing, delicious. Your life, God says, will and can be amazing. And sure, all of those individual experiences, one by one by one, they don't taste good by themselves, but when they're all put together, they're fantastic, and they're beautiful, and they're amazing. And some of you right now are thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Are you really saying that God can bring absolute good out of absolute awful. You've got to be kidding me. And I say, yes, he can. He absolutely can. Just take one little instance, for example, think on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for a moment. The death of God's one and only son. We all go, that's awful, right? First, they tor- this is an innocent man, right? And they torture him and they spit on him, and they beat him, and then they hang him up like a shameless criminal on a wooden cross. And then ask yourself, did God bring any good out of that? And the answer is absolutely he did. Absolutely he did. Just this little thing called the salvation of the world. Because see, God's specialty is bringing good out of bad. He does it every single day. And he wants to do it with you, and he wants to do it with me. And just one of the ways that God brings good out of our pain, out of our hardship, and uses it to help others is by us very simply sharing our story. Just very simply sharing our story. 
Our story of how Jesus gave us the hope we needed to change, to be different. And I know you know this, but the people around you every day are absolutely starving for hope. I promise you, when you go out those doors, whoever you encounter, as you do life this week, whether it's in the grocery store, in your driveway, at the post office, your kid's school, your own school, everybody you see this week, every single person has hidden pain, hidden hurt, everybody. And everybody you meet this week is literally starving for massive doses of hope. And when you come along and when you share the hope that Jesus Christ gave you when you were in a very dark place, you automatically have a very receptive audience. So many people feel hopeless today. So many people that you know are saying, my life is so out of control. I cannot ever seem to change. Nothing ever seems to work. Life has just kicked the hope right out of me. I'm trapped in a hopeless marriage, in a hopeless career, in a hopeless addiction, in a hopeless crisis. I'm trapped in a hopeless health issue. Everybody is starving for hope. And the best hope to help anyone is the hope that comes through somebody who's been in that spot. Dan and I, for the last couple of weeks, have been riding shotgun through some very good friends of ours, unbelievably devastating crisis. Like, I feel like a gutted fish, literally. Now, I think that maybe, maybe, Dan and I, at some very base level, have been helpful to our friends through this journey. But I gotta tell you that the very best thing that my friends will ever hear will come through people whom God has helped through the exact same stuff. I've never been through this deal before. I have not felt what they're feeling. I have not walked where they are walking right now. And what they really need is people every single day to sit across the table from eyeball to eyeball and say, here's what happened to me. And here's what's going to happen now. And here's where you're going to end up next. And here's what it's going to be like And here's how God is inviting you to change. And here's what God is inviting you to think about. And here's what God is inviting you to do. And that's exactly how God wants to use every single one of us to be the one sitting across the table, eyeball to eyeball, saying, yep, I've been there. Yep, I've done that. And here's what God did in me. God wants to use all of us to be dispensers and conduits of his hope. God invites us to be hope pushers, if you will. He asks us to promote his hope wherever we go. It's the very thing we're trying to be as a community called Journey Church. But if we're ever going to be it at a corporate level, we've got to do that at an individual level. It can't just be in rooms like this. It's got to be all of us out there being hope pushers, hope inviters. And 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, here's what the Bible says. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. And see, when you boil all of this down, really, the sharing choice is all about us being witnesses for Jesus Christ. And lots of Christians, we freak out when we hear that word witness. Oh, not witnessing, not sharing my faith. It's what Jesus invites us to be in Acts. He says, look, you're going to be my witnesses. We're all scared to death to be witnesses. We're all scared to death to share our faith. 
That's because most of us think that witnessing or sharing our faith means having to explain everything about why Jesus died on the cross, quoting chapters of memorized scripture verses, knowing all this theology and all of this doctrine. But here's the thing. You don't have to know a single Bible verse to be a witness. You don't. There's a very big difference between being a witness and being an attorney, right? Just watch Boston Legal and you'll see that borne out, right? The attorney's job is to press the case, right? To show the evidence, to ask for a decision. That's what attorneys do. But never ever in the whole of the Bible does Jesus ever say, I need you to be my criminal defense attorney. Jesus never says that. He never asks that of us. It's never our job to convince anyone to yield their lives to Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. You and we are not God's attorneys. But you are and we are as God's children invited every day to be his witnesses. What's a witness do? A witness very simply says, here's what I saw. Here's what happened. The blue car smashed into the red car, right? And does that mean you're an automobile expert if you talk like that to a police officer because you witnessed a crash? No. You don't know anything else, anything having to do with the drivers, their condition, their motive for crashing into the other car. You just saw the blue car smash into the red car, period. That's what it is to be a witness. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened. And today, God is inviting us to say to all kinds of people in our lives, look, that pain, it really grabbed my attention. Let me tell you what I learned. I learned that I need people in my life especially when I'm going through pain. I learned that God is everything that I need because you don't know how much you need God until God's got all you've got. I learned that God's with me no matter what. You share the lessons. You share the story. You say, let me tell you about a time when something so terribly dark, so terribly bad happened to me, but God brought good out of it. God is in the process of bringing good out of it. You tell your story of how God infused his hope in a seemingly hopeless situation. You just pass it on. You're just passing God's hope on. And you do it, when you do it, please, will you do it humbly? Will you do it humbly? Not from a position of, I've got it all figured out or arrogance. Just be real humble. Here's my story. Here's my deal. And please be real when you do that. Don't be fake. Just be real. And don't ever please put your finger in someone's chest and like start to lecture and you need to, you must, why don't you, you know. Just tell your story. Speaking of stories, our friend Tyler Garrison, he's been a part of the Journey Church family for quite a while now. He's going to come and share his story of what really is great hope. So would you please give a very warm welcome to our friend Tyler. How y'all doing today? As Brian said, my name is Tyler Garrison, and I had a pancreatic kidney transplant about a year ago. Prior to that, I had been a diabetic for 34 years. When I was young, I rebelled. I ate Halloween candy. I went to birthday parties, and they'd be like, oh, you can't eat that. And I'd be like, oh, i got to have a bite, man. I would be like everybody else. Um, I didn't take my insulin once for four days on a spring break vacation with my grandmother, and it ended up putting me into a diabetic coma. Later in college, I drank beer, and I did all the things you weren't supposed to do, ate junk food, pizza at 1 o'clock in the morning, all that stuff. My hemoglobin A1C, which is an overall test of your diabetic uh, well-being, got into the low 20s, and under 6 is optimal. 
I was young and I thought I was healthy and I had nothing to lose. I lived in Ennis every summer as a fishing guide. I even spent five months in New Zealand on an internship when I graduated from college. I literally had friends all over the world. Church to me was always the great outdoors, the church of fly fishing. It's where I felt closest to God. He, created, he had created this amazing place called Montana and all these beautiful rivers with amazing mountains and beautiful wild trout. Later, I got married to my beautiful wife, and like any good wife, she wanted to take care of me, so I let her. She got hypervigilant about my diabetes, and I got super relaxed, I say. Um, after several panicked 911 calls and too many midnight seizures to count, she said, you know what, you're on your own. This is your disease. You didn't ask for it, and it stinks, but it's yours, and you need to take care of yourself. Our kids even had to help me a few times with some low blood sugars. They even saw me fall down in convulsions one night in our kitchen while we were making dinner. My wife didn't want our kids to feel like they had to take care of me, and neither did I. So I got a grip, and I started paying more attention to what I ate. I checked my blood sugar as often as I could. I exercised, and I saw my doctor on a regular basis. Things were going fine. I'd even gotten a new 24-hour glucose monitor that I attached a sensor to my stomach and had this great little thing in my pocket. Every time my blood sugar got high, it would beep and say, you got to take some insulin, and every time I got low... Uh, before I actually fell down and started not being able to hear people, it would beep and say, you got to eat something. It was a safety net. It was, made my life a lot more comfortable. Then one day I woke up with swollen calves and ankles. And if you've never seen my legs before in the summer Sundays here, uh, my legs look very similar to your neighbor's chickens. They're very small and tiny, so it was pretty obvious when they woke up swollen. Um, the swelling was a result of my kidneys going into failure because of a diabetic care I had Uh, because of the lack of diabetic care and the length of time I had had diabetes. I got on the national donor list December 11, 2007, which was my birthday. And less than a year later, November 17th, actually two days from now, we got the call at 11 p.m., get to Denver as soon as possible. At the time, I was number four on the list for the national donor list of kidney pancreatic transplant. This is kind of cool. Number one and number two had the flu, so they were not able to have a surgery of this magnitude. And number three was out of the country. So I was number four. My number was up. Um, At first, I didn't know what to do, really. We had found a living donor for a kidney only, and a surgery was set for December 29th. There was conflicting research on the outcome of of a kidney pancreatic transplant. You could lose one or the other. You could lose both and possibly even die. And then my family and I said, what's the risk? If this kidney is rejected, I have another one waiting for me on December 29th. And if the pancreas gets rejected... I had recently learned and knew how to be a good diabetic. So I really didn't have that much to lose besides the ultimate gift that I already had, which was my life. So we went for it. An angel flight crew picked us up the next morning at Gallatin Field and flew us to Denver. We got there by 11 a.m. And then I had almost 12 hours before the surgery to absorb the magnitude of what had transpired to bring me to this moment. Someone was being kept alive artificially so that I could have a choice at a, at a better life. This person who died had been a donor on their driver's license. They volunteered to give their organs to people in need of them if they were to pass away suddenly. If you're not an organ donor, I would hope that you would consider it now. The, top, the topic of this can go either way, but the bottom line is truly is the right thing to do. In my opinion, it is what God invites us to do. The deceased are going somewhere. Your spirit is all that is needed for that journey. Leave your parts for someone who can use them here and now, please. Someone was saying goodbye to their father or daughter, their mother or their son, so that I could have a chance at a better life. The ultimate sacrifice was being made for me, I thought, 
And how am I going to live my life from here on out to honor that? My choice was that I was going to use this experience to further God's kingdom. As we have learned from the past 12 week, 10 weeks, excuse me, in Life Hurts, God Heals. The scriptures quoted in chapter 10 of our workbooks. From Corinthians 12, 9, My weakness of not taking care of myself allowed me the opportunity to be reunited with God. The success of my surgery has given me the strength to share God to anyone at any time. I don't try to push God on people, but instead I listen for opportunities to introduce God, strength, and his life. From Proverbs 2030, My experience, as painful as it was, has opened my eyes to how wonderful life is and how important God is how important it is to let God lead our way and trust through good and bad that he will watch us grow through each and every experience of our lives. From Jonah 2.7, on our flight to Denver and while waiting for 12 hours for my surgery, I talked openly to God about the mistakes I had made and how scared I was I would not be forgiven. I battled with God in the waiting, asking for a second chance to live life to promote how strong God was. Forgiveness is a hard thing to take for granted. There isn't a guarantee that it will happen. It is a conscious decision to accept responsibility for your actions. To not feel guilty and to agree to recognize the good and bad that came. I realized that while waiting for that, or excuse me, I realized that, I realized while waiting for all the fun that I had had was, and was feeling guilty about was also the reason that I had been given this opportunity to have this transplant. From Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, the day I woke up with swollen ankles and went to the doctor and was rushed to Billings to a nephrologist was a long and scary day. When they said your kidneys are, going in, or, your kidneys are failing and you may need that dialysis, I was literally freaking out. On the drive home, my wife Molly and I talked about our options and the obvious was less salt, exercise, di- diabetic stability, and trusting that God, was ba- that God had my back and was going to take care of me was the most comforting in that crazy, stressful time. In hindsight, it was the smartest decision I ever could have made. From the Second Corinthians 1 and 4, I have a friend who has gotten my, himself into some trouble. He's actually sitting in the Gallatin County Dissension Center right now on his 39th day of being there. I visit my friend on Sundays and Thursdays between the hours of 1 and 4, and we talk a lot about God and how he goes to church in the detention center. We talk about how he's looking forward to his release and to celebrating his future and letting go of his past. When I visit him, I listen a lot, but I refuse to let our conversations linger about the mistakes he's made. It is important for my friend to acknowledge his mistakes and own them, but more important for he and I to talk about his future plans and his journey, allowing God to lead him. We talk a lot about Journey Church and his plans to be a part of this great promotion of God's life, and I look forward to him joining us here soon. One of the greatest things that I have learned since my family and I started coming to Journey Church almost three years ago is that we are all special, unique individuals that have baggage we don't want to recognize. But that because of God's forgiveness through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, we all have the opportunity to be forgiven by God and the chance to spend the rest of our lives loving and living for him. Journey Church challenges us to analyze our journey through life. Journey Church helps me process the actions of my life so that I am more comfortable with everything I do, both good and bad. That doesn't mean that I am more comfortable in doing bad things. It just means that I am more comfortable in recognizing behaviors and actions I have that could have been, more, that could have been done differently. We all make mistakes, as Brian just said. No one is perfect. It is our responsibility as Christ followers to identify them on a regular basis so that we can get them digested and move on with other wonderful things that God has going on in our lives. Thank you very much.
Thanks, Tyler, for sharing that. That's cool. Praise God. Would you just take your stuff and set it aside and just go to prayer and just invite you to listen into the Lord if you would. Get still with Him. And I know that there's a whole bunch of you here who right now are living through the most difficult season in your whole life. Right now. And for lots and lots of you, about 10 weeks ago, you were scared to death to start this recovery journey because you felt you had, like you had so much at risk. What you risked unveiling or what you risked revealing about you and your pain and your past. And I want you to know that these choices that we've been talking about for the last 10 weeks, they don't end when this experience community-wide ends. These are the exact same choices that you'll have to make every day for the rest of your life because this recovery deal is an ongoing and lifelong process. And maybe there's a bunch of you who are here and you need some intensive recovery. You need to actually show up on Thursday nights at Celebrate Recovery and just camp out there for a while and maybe you need to walk through these steps again and again and again the R, the E, the C, the O, the V, the E, the R, the Y so that next year at this time life's different next year at this time you're well next year at this time you're healed because the truth is God wants you to cease being hassled by that hurt from your past God wants you to cease being hassled by that habit that just persists and persists and persists. God wants you to cease being hassled by that hang-up in your life, that thing that you just can't get over. God wants you to get it over with. He's inviting you to give it up. He's inviting you to put down the hate. He's asking you to stop clinging, stop holding on, stop feeling guilty. He says, just just put it down. Just put it down. And I want to ask you some real personal questions in the next few moments. First of all, how has God been trying to get your attention through your pain? What have you been just ignoring or what have you just been trying to medicate away? And then are you learning anything from your mistakes? Are you learning to depend more on God than you do on yourself or anyone or anything else? Are you learning to obey His word more today than you did yesterday and more tomorrow than you did today? Are you learning that you actually need other people in your life, especially in the painful times? Will you trust God? Will you trust Him so much that you trust Him to bring utter good out of utter awful in your life? Will you trust Him that much? And will you let God use your mistakes? Will you let God use your pain to help someone else this week? Will you let him do that?
God, we thank you so much for loving us enough to get our attention. We humbly plead that you would bring the good out of the bad. That you'd help us learn the lessons that we need to learn. Help us learn to be completely and totally dependent upon you, God. Help us to not just be people who learn the word so that we can have a whole bunch of knowledge up in our heads about it. But God, would you help us be doers of your word, people who actually do what you ask us to do. Because the truth is, God, we want to be fully the people who you made us to be and nothing less. We want you to use us to help others, please. So give us hope, God, when we feel utterly hopeless. Bestow your power upon us so that we can be different, so that we can change. Help us be honest with you and with ourselves and with others about everything, our faults, our fears, our frustrations, our failures, all of it. And use us, please, God, to infuse your hope into the lives of other people. Please, God. Help us not to waste the pain. Help us use it, leverage it for you. God, thank you so much for always being present with us. And if there's those of you who are here today and you've never opened your life to Jesus Christ, you can do that right now. You can do that by saying, Jesus, just come into my life right now, please. I'm a sinner and I need a savior, God. And I invite you to take over every area of my mind and my heart. It's all yours. I follow you completely. I trust you completely. Thank you for doing just that, God. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone says.